Welcome to the Harvest Bible Chapel of Winston-Salem podcast. We believe in proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology, lifting high the name of Jesus through worship, believing firmly in the power of prayer, and sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. For more information, visit harvestws.org. Here's this week's message. Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9, we're going to focus on. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. I just think, I, I think we all need to refocus back on the Lord as we go to his word. Father, we, we are overwhelmed by Jesus Christ, our Lord. What a wonderful name is Christ, our Lord. And it's not just the vowels or the syllables, but it is who he is, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so, Father, I pray we would make much of him here this morning, that his name would be high and lifted up, that you would block out anything that would distract us. And, Lord, that you would help us to focus on him like a laser that we would see him in the pages of Scripture this morning, and we would walk out of here extravagant worshipers, praising his name, not just here as we sing, but throughout the week. Lord, we need to do that. Our city needs to see that. This world needs to hear the powerful name of Jesus. May he be lifted high in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in interesting times. I mean, everything is like new and improved and epic and historic. I mean, in sports this year, in baseball, the Cubs won the World Series. A lot of Cubs fans here. 108-year drought. It was historic, wasn't it? I mean, how many of you stayed up and watched the Cubs win the World Series? Like, some people that are not even baseball fans wanted to see that. We live in historic times. In politics, we live in historic times. We have had the first African-American president in President Obama. We've had the first female candidate for a major party in Mrs. Clinton and the first outsider in Mr. Trump. We live in historic times. In basketball, if you're into sports as well, Golden State, Lost after being up three games to one. It was a historic collapse in basketball. The stock market has hidden historic highs. Interest rates have been at historic lows. We live in historic times. Historic, historic, epic, unbelievable times. One of my favorite commentators from one of my favorite theological journals Sports Illustrated, had this to say about our historic times. His name is Steve Rush, and he said this. He said, we live in an age of profound baloney. Certain words have been turned upside down and had all meaning shaken from their pockets. 
In sports, there have been enough historic moments, enough epic games, enough greatest players of all time to render those phrases empty. By stating superlatives, even when they're appropriate, they are bees that sting once and then die. And I agree with Steve Rush. We do live in an age of profound baloney. We live in an age where if everything is epic and everything is historic, nothing is epic and nothing is historic. See, what we have before us here this morning is truly a historic and epic piece of Scripture before us. The text before us contains a historic announcement. And I want you to see it for yourself. See if you can find it as I read it to you. Mark chapter 14. Look at verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, As he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask. She poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And wherever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad. They promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray them. Did you catch the historic pronouncement in that passage? Verse 9, look back at it with me. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, In the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Why did Jesus make this promise? Why did he make this promise to her? Why did he make this promise to her at this time? Why did he make this promise to just her? Why her? Why? Why this promise? Because it's the only one found like this in Scripture. Our task this morning is to understand why her, so we can be like her. The big idea this morning is this. Extravagant worship is what we are made for. It's what we're made for. Every one of us in this room. Not just the people up here who lead us in singing, not me who leads us in preaching, but everyone in this room is made for extravagant worship. 
And the context of this passage is really interesting. In verses 1 and 2, we see darkness. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14, as the Pharisees are brooding and they're getting ready to kill Jesus Christ. And in verses 10 and 11, we see one of the, the big betrayal, Judas Iscariot, deciding he was going to betray Jesus. So we've got darkness in verses 1 and 2, darkness in verses 10 and 11. And in between that, we have light. We have a party. And it's an interesting party. Let's look at the guest list. Look at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, Bethany's about two miles away from Jerusalem, in the house of Simon the leper. Stop right there. Simon the leper. Simon the leper? I think his name really should be Simon the leper no more because nobody would be in the house of an active leper. Simon the leper no more. Simon is a man um, who had the disease of leprosy. And leprosy is described as death by inches. As you would rub your skin off. You were an outcast. You could not go into worship with the people of God. We learned that last week as we looked at the ten lepers. But Simon is the leper. He's a cleansed leper. But he had had leprosy for so long, his name was associated with leprosy. And I know this is a little bit of speculation, but they're having a party in his house. And maybe they're having a party in his house because Jesus has cleansed him of leprosy. And he had a lot to be thankful for. I know it doesn't say that in the text, but I think that's a pretty good assertion from the text that Simon the leper is Simon the leper no more because Jesus has laid his hands on Simon and he's been cleansed. And as we weave through this text this morning, I want to show you some things about extravagant worship. And the first part is this extravagant worship is just thankful. It's thankful. Extravagant worship is thankful. We've got Simon the leper, who's Simon the leper no more. And if you were to compare this to the other, other texts that have this in it, we also find out that Lazarus is there. Lazarus from the book of John. And Lazarus is close to Jesus. But Lazarus is that guy that was raised from the dead in John chapter 11. Jesus at this point is public enemy number one. Lazarus is public enemy Number two, because every time Lazarus shows up somewhere, people are like, that's the guy that Jesus rose from the dead, raised from the dead. Now imagine being at this party. You're at the party at the house of Simon the leper, no more, with Lazarus, who was risen from the dead. I mean, what would you ask Lazarus if you were at that party? I think my questions would be like this. What, Lazarus, what was it like to die? And are you bummed that you're going to have to do it again? I mean, Lazarus, what was heaven like? Who did you meet? Was Moses there? Was he still angry? Was Jeremiah still weeping? Was Jonah still pouting? I mean, Lazarus, what was it like? I mean, he was dead. Dead, dead, dead. And now he's alive. I mean, how did that even happen? I mean, was Lazarus up there in heaven, praising God? God looks down, and he's like, oh, Mary's crying, Martha's crying, Jesus is crying. Lazarus, you're going back. I mean, was that how it went, went up there? Lazarus 
was dead, and now he's alive, and he's at this party. I mean, I have a hard time waking up from a long nap. Lazarus and Simon, the leper no more, are at this party. If we were to keep going, we'd find out that the disciples, many of them are there. We'll hear from them a little bit later. Jesus is the guest of honor. And then a lady by the name of Martha from the book of John, we learn, is there as well. She's the sister of Lazarus. She's a servant. She's always rushing around serving. And usually, she's accompanied by her sister Mary. So where's Mary? Look at verse 3. While she was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly. She broke the flask. She poured it over his head. See, this is Mary. This is where Mary appears in the text. See, this is Mary, not Jesus' mom, Mary, not Mary Magdalene, but another Mary. And she lives with her brother and sister, Lazarus and Martha, in this town of Bethany, which is about two miles from Jerusalem. And so she comes in. And we see a second thing about extravagant worship is this. Extravagant worship is open. Mary walks in as everybody is having this party together, and she walks right up to Jesus. She doesn't pause. She doesn't look around to see what other people were going to think of her. She walks right up to Jesus. All eyes are on her. Her fear of God, her love for God is greater than her love for what people are going to think of her. Because what she's going to do is shocking. Because we find out that not only does she walk up to Jesus, she has something in her hand. She has an alabaster jar of very costly perfume. Sometimes in Scripture, we don't understand what's going on, but this is really profound when you think through this. She has an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. This vial was a little kind of jar that had a very small neck. There was nothing big about it. There was nothing grand about the vial itself, but what was in it was very important. It contained a very costly perfume. Now stop right there for a minute. How much in your mind do you think is costly for perfume? $100, $200, maybe $300. You'd be like, that's costly perfume. If you're to do the math on this perfume, it's worth 300 denarii, which is a full year's wage for someone. I did a little searching on the internet. The medium income for somebody in the United States is $52,000 a year, okay? So this, in our day and age, would be a vial full of perfume that is worth $52,000. Oh, that's a pretty important vial, right? You would protect that vial. And she walks in with this pure nard perfume. This pure nard perfume only needed one drop to make the whole room smell like the perfume. And what does she do? She comes up and she passionately pours this over Jesus. And we learn, number three, that extravagant worship is passionate. She breaks the vial and she pours it over Jesus' head. Now, why? 
Why would she do that? Most likely, this was the most expensive thing that Mary had. So why would she pour it all over Jesus? Why would she break this vial and just pour it all over him? Because she was passionate about her worship, and no one was going to stop Mary from worshiping Jesus Christ. No one. No look. No little vial. Nothing was going to stop Mary from worshiping Jesus Christ. See, once the room must have smelled of food, but now this room was overpowered by perfume. And sometimes when we read the text, we miss the drama of the situation. I want you to think about this. There's a dinner party. There's a celebration going. There's conversations going as they recline around the table. Mary walks up to Jesus, takes this vial, cracks it, and pours it all over him. And the whole room smells like perfume. And there's not one eye not looking at her right now. Everyone is looking at her. And whispering. Things like, how embarrassing. What is she doing? That's so wasteful. And as I look at this story, I find myself asking, do I worship Jesus like that? Do you worship Jesus like that? Thankfully, openly, passionately. I mean, what has worship cost you? It cost Mary a full year's wage. See, extravagant worship is thankful. It's open. It's passionate. And it's also costly. It costs us time. For some of us, it might cost us friends and family and promotions to worship Christ as we should. And Mary just pours it all out for the Lord. But the story doesn't end there. It would be a really pretty, beautiful story. Look at verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, and if you were to compare Matthew's account and John's account, the sum is Judas Iscariot and the rest of the disciples. So the people who are supposed to be leading in worship are yelling at this lady. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. See, extravagant worship is costly, but it's also opposed by many people. You'll be called a zealot You'll be called a little too extreme if you extravagantly worship the Lord Jesus Christ in our day and age. They'll be like, oh, they've kind of gone over the edge. Some, these disciples, started charging her with extravagant waste, not extravagant worship. The word wasted actually means what she has done has ruined or destroyed or vandalized our party. It's kind of like they're saying, Mary is over there lighting cigars with a $100 bill kind of waste. You would be like, that would be horrible. Or more accurately, a $52,000 bill. They're like, she is wasting what she has. And that kind of sounds like good reasoning. I mean, this perfume was a year's wage, and they could have sold it and given it to the poor. 
It sounds reasonable until you compare what John has to say. In John chapter 12, verses 4 and 6 gives us a little bit more. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him said this, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, John tells us, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bags, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You know what Judas was saying? She's cutting into my profits. He's leading the charge. The disciples are following him because she's cutting into his profits. They saw waste, but Jesus saw something completely different. Look at verse 6. But Jesus said to her, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for the burial. See, they saw waste. Jesus saw something beautiful because extravagant worship to Jesus is beautiful. It's beautiful to Jesus. He loves it when we pour out our hearts to him. See, Jesus defends her. They saw waste. He saw worship. The true worshiper doesn't ask, how much will this cost me? Or do I have the time to worship Christ? But like Mary, the true worshiper, the extravagant worshiper, gives whatever they have, knowing that in no way does this make up or even compare to what Jesus has given us. Extravagant worship flows from a heart that has been changed by the gospel of Christ. Verse 7, he says that we will always have the poor with us. We will always live in a fallen world. And she has, verse 8, done what she could. She has given extravagantly. She anointed his body for burial, meaning that Jesus was going to be killed in a few short hours. Now, all that is the background to what I want to focus on here this morning. Verse 9. Look at it again. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed to the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Wherever, wherever the gospel is told, like in Africa, New York City and Alaska, wherever the gospel is told, her story is going to be told with it. Wherever. Ray, imagine that if Jesus looked at you and he said, Ray, wherever the gospel is preached, your story, your testimony is going to be told. Abby, what if he said that to you? Wherever the gospel is preached, your testimony is going to be told all over the world. That's amazing. That's historic. Can you believe it? See, extravagant worship is profound. It's profound. There's nothing like it. And I believe this story tells us more about worship 
than any book that we could read on worship does. Mary shows us what a heart changed by the gospel is made to do. A heart changed by the gospel is made to worship. And so why is this such a profound story? Why does Jesus point her out as an example for us? I think there's two major reasons that we find right here. And the first one is this, that Mary shows evidence of a converted heart. She shows evidence of a converted heart, of a heart changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Harvest, what's your evidence of a converted heart? Now, I'm not talking about when was the day you walked the aisle or said the prayer or signed the card. All those things are helpful. But I'm saying, what is the evidence in your life right now that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the evidence to your neighbors that you love Jesus Christ more than anything in this world? What is the evidence to your coworkers that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? What is the evidence to your unsaved family that you love Christ more than anything? What is the evidence? It's not about the absence of sin, but it's about a conflict of sin in your own life, a growth in the gospel. James Means, a commentator, puts it this way. In the evangelical church in the United States, it is quite common for someone to remain in a lifestyle indistinguishable from that of an unconverted, unregenerate individual, but with confidence that they possess eternal salvation. This is sadly quite common. And as I think about that, Where does that confidence come from? That we can be converted but look exactly the same as the world. I think that confidence comes from pastors and people who lack courage to speak the truth in love. To say this is what the gospel looks like. Harvest, this is my last time I get to preach to you and I love you very much and I'm so excited about this. But I would be remiss If I didn't ask you, where is your confidence in that you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? See, you might be a recipient of false assurance if you find yourself unresponsive in worship, unaffected by the truth, uninterested in preaching, uninvolved in the local church, and unaware of your sin. And if that is you, if I have described you, you are unlike Mary and maybe... You're unconverted. But there's hope. So you don't have to leave here feeling that way. Jesus came to set us free from the shackles of sin. To rescue us from ourselves. If we would just trust fully in him, in him alone, in his sacrifice alone. Christ is enough for me. Amen? Christ's sacrifice is enough for me, and it's enough for you. The trust that Jesus Christ lived that perfect life that we don't live and died the death that we all deserve, that should change us. 
That should change every one of us. So Harvest, what is God working on in you right now that makes you a passionate worshiper of him? Let me tell you, for me, it's trust. It's trust. I have learned so much about trust in these past 18 months here as I've dwelt with you about trusting in the Lord. No matter what, when I can't see it, it doesn't matter what I feel. It doesn't matter what I see. My hope will always be in God's promises for me. Amen? What is the evidence of conversion in your own heart? And secondly, the reason why this is such a profound story is this. It shows the growing experience of a converted heart. And I want to read you a story. I didn't make this story up, but I think it's really powerful. So I want you to pay attention and find yourself in this story. The story goes like this. She took her children to the park to break the monotony of her day-to-day routine, but instead, she broke her own heart. She watched her children run around the playground, and as another car drove into the parking lot, she saw this car come to a quick stop and a young, attractive woman with a beaming smile leaped from behind the steering wheel and virtually skipped to an adjoining picnic table. The imagination of the mother began to race. Who was she meeting in this secluded spot with so much enthusiasm? Was this a long-awaited rendezvous with an over-busy husband? Or a lunch date with a best friend? Or a secret meeting with a lover? The young mother determined to stay on the lookout for whoever got out of the next car. But no one else came immediately. The mother soon became preoccupied with the children and forgot to watch the young woman. But when she did, when she did finally glance at the woman, what the mother saw made her own heart hurt. The woman was reading a Bible. The person whom she leapt from the car to meet was the Lord Jesus Christ. And at this moment, the mother quickly realized with pain that she no longer had that same enthusiasm. Oh, she had it once, but now those feelings had passed. She was once excited by the Lord, but no more. Where there once was a fire, now there was just a flame. She did not know what had happened, but she knew in her heart that she no longer would skip to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. She had lost something wonderful, and she wept. She wept there in the park for her loss. Harvest, is that you? Would you leap out of your car to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in reading his word and praying? We can all identify with the grumblers in Mary's story. I mean, if I were to rewrite the story of Mary, it would go something like this. Mary comes in, everybody's talking, and they're, they're uh, loving the Lord Jesus Christ. And she comes in and she cracks the vial. And the people go, stop, stop, stop. And they line up behind Mary. And they say, Mary, 
can I have some of your wonderful ointment to pour on the Lord Jesus Christ? Lazarus lines up behind him and says, he, he raised me from the dead and pours oil on Christ. Simon the leper more, leper no more, comes up and says, he cured me from leprosy. Mary, I was healed. Matthew, I once was a tax collector. What would you say if you were in that room? What would you lay at Jesus' feet? Say, praise God. See, in order for extravagant worship to grow, all of us in this room must review and reflect upon the gospel every single day. You're like, that's simple. But it ain't easy, is it? That's simple. That's what I have to do to extravagantly worship? Yeah. Review and reflect upon the gospel. See, the gospel is a message not just for us to be saved, but it's for us to be sanctified and for us to embrace every single day of our lives. Live each day light of the gospel. If there was someone that I could bring up here from the past that I would love to have preached to you, that I would love to hear preach, it's a guy by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers. Like, if I could get him to come back and say this quote to you, it would be really powerful, but I'm going to say it to you anyhow. Because he had this to say about the gospel. He said this, Are you content to follow Jesus from a distance? Oh, Let me affectionately warn you, for it is a grievous thing when we can live contentedly without the present enjoyment of the Savior's face. Let us work to feel what an evil thing this is. Little love to our own dying Savior. Little joy in our precious Jesus. Little fellowship with the beloved. Hold a true repentance in your own soul while you sorrow over your hardness of heart, but don't stop at sorrow. Remember where you first received salvation and go at once. Go at once. Go at once to the cross. And there, and there only can you get your spirit aroused. No matter how hard, how insensible, how dead we have become, let's all go to the cross. The more we dwell, and listen to this, the more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, the more noble our lives have become. Nothing puts life to dying men and women like a dying Savior. Harvest, how often do you dwell where the cries of Calvary are heard? I want to give you a moment just to do that this morning. I want you to close everything up, like kind of pack up like we're going. But I want you to stay seated. I want you to close your eyes I want us to dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard at the foot of the cross. Close your eyes. Listen to the cries of Calvary. 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today, you will be with me. My God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. Harvest, if I could just have one prod for you, one thing that I hope you remember every day, I hope that you live each day where the cries of Calvary can be heard. I hope that you live each day in light of the gospel. Because if you do, you will live a life of extravagant worship. Fix your eyes on Jesus and glorify him by living out the gospel here in Winston-Salem and everywhere across the world. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening to the Harvest Bible Chapel Winston-Salem podcast. For more information, visit harvestws.org.